So we've been looking at who or what is so special about this guy named Jesus, right, in the Gospel of Luke. We've been looking at Luke specifically, his angle, as what we saw at the beginning of the semester, in the beginning of his Gospel, he tells us that he writes this Gospel not being one who met Jesus, not being one who followed Jesus in person, but one who has followed all things about Jesus closely for some time. He writes to us through whoever Theophilus was because he wants us to be more certain concerning the things that we've been taught. And so now we're here at the end of the gospel uh, where all, most all the gospels end, not with the death of Jesus, uh, but with his resurrection. Last week, what, something I suggested to you that the climactic answer to what is so special about this Jesus uh, was that he died. And so this week, as we wrap up uh, the semester and we wrap up our thoughts here about the Gospel of Luke, we ask the question, what is so special about a guy who died? And what the Gospel's answer is, is that he's not dead. He's alive. The empty tomb. The empty tomb. Some 20 to 25 years after this event, Paul uh, in 1 Corinthians 15 would say this. If the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. And we, we Christians, are of all people most to be pitied. The empty tomb, what Paul is getting at there when he talks about the resurrected Jesus, the empty tomb, is that Christianity completely fails without it. That Christianity as a faith system, as a religion, whatever you want to call it, is a farce without the resurrection. That is what Paul said, and he was pulling no punches. What we are doing here tonight, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, why are we here? That's what I would suggest to you tonight. Let's, I know uh, you've got little tiny print there tonight, but I wanted to read. I, I'm not going to be able to do this whole chapter justice, but this, Luke's uh, resurrection account is my favorite. So I'm going to read this as quickly as I can, uh, starting at the beginning here of Luke 24. This is God's word for us tonight. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared. This is the women. We read about the women going to the the tomb at the end of chapter 23. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven to all, and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. And he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. 
that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking, discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And as they stood still looking sad, then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and be crucified him. And we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and, they did, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. And so they drew near to the village to which they were going, and He acted as if they were going farther. But they urged Him strongly, Stay with us, for it's toward evening and the day is now far spent. So He went in to stay with them. When He was at table with them, He took the bread and He blessed and broke it and He gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized Him. And He vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road, while He opened to us the Scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and he said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he, said, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it before them. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to, op to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. This is God's Word for us tonight. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray before we look into this. Father, this is Your Word as it proclaims to us the life of our Savior. We pray that it would be life for our hearts tonight. 
We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The empty tomb, as I said, Christianity fails without it. Christianity is a farce without it. As Paul told us, if Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile. And we of all people are most to be pitied. Two things I want to ask tonight, or two things I want to look at tonight. What have I done, right? I usually have three. But just two tonight. There's actually three, three points under the second one, but we'll get there in a minute. Um, two points. Why it's true and why we need it to be true. And again, we don't have time to kind of dive into depth of everything that happens in this chapter, but I just want to take a big picture look for a few minutes at the resurrection of Jesus as the culmination here of the life and ministry of Jesus. Why it's true. Why is the resurrection true? Why can we determine it's true? Why should we think it's true? However you want to ask that question. There's a, a theologian named Yaroslav Pelikan. That's an awesome name. Um, he said this, and I think it's brilliant. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then nothing else matters. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then nothing else really matters. Simple, but profound. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, nothing else matters. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then nothing else matters. The resurrection of Jesus Christ says... Uh, church fathers from Augustine and before him and forward since him and others have noted the leading truth of the early church of early Christians in the first century in the decades after Jesus's life, death and resurrection, the central truth that they claim that they clung to about Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was that he died. And that he was resurrected, that he rose from the dead. The bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. I cannot talk tonight. This is terrible. The bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is one of the central truth claims of Christianity. Again, Christianity fails without it. And so, since it is the central truth claim of Christianity, we need to investigate it as such. And Luke himself said that he wanted us to have more certainty according, uh, concerning the things that we've been taught. And so we want to approach the resurrection in the exact same way. And I think the best way, is a, it's a tactic that Tim Keller takes in his book, The Reason for God. If you've never read that book, it's amazing. Uh, but his chapter on the resurrection, I'm going to steal pretty liberally from here. But... I think the best way to consider the resurrection as a truth claim is to begin at least with understanding that any other uh, explanation doesn't hold water. Here's just a few popular ones that that people have uh, suggested over the years. Really, actually, over only the last hundred years have these been suggested. So that tells you something outright. But the first one is what is called the swoon theory. And it basically goes like this. Sure, people thought Jesus was dead. But perhaps he wasn't really dead. Maybe like in the, uh, the Princess Bride, he was just mostly dead, right? Uh, and you need one of those weird pills to chew on. I don't know. Um, so who's to say that Jesus was actually fully dead? Well, if you remember last week when we looked at the crucifixion account, when we looked at Luke 23, or you can go look at it for yourself, the whole death and burial account of Jesus completely buries this theory. See what I did there? Yeah. Um, If you remember from chapter 23, the whole account is making sure to tell us that there were tons of people that saw Jesus die. 
Tons of people, not just his followers, the crowds, the centurion, right? There's the women that followed him to the cross. There's the centurion who would have overseen hundreds of crucifixion. A centurion, a Roman soldier that would not have been unfamiliar with dead bodies. When Jesus breathes his last, exclaims, surely this man was innocent. They didn't break Jesus' legs as was custom for people that were taking too long to die because he was already dead. This guy named Joseph of Arimathea comes and takes the body off the cross and lays it in a tomb. The women go to the tomb and watch Jesus' body be laid in that tomb. Roman soldiers at the instruction of the Jewish leaders go to the tomb to watch the body be laid in the tomb and then they put a stone in front of it, right? The whole crucifixion account goes to great pains to tell us that Jesus was dead. It's also worth noting that not once in recorded history did anyone suggest, at least in the early church, early history, did anyone suggest maybe he wasn't really dead. Again, that suggestion, that theory comes up in the last hundred years or so. Second one would be this idea of delusion. That the idea of resurrection comes about because of delusion. Because the disciples just sit around after Jesus' death and they hope so much for a resurrection, right? Uh, that they just imagine all of this and they kind of just hope it into reality and it becomes so real in their collective minds that they start writing about it. But here's the most damning evidence, I think, uh, to this theory. Is that the whole entire New Testament... And the whole entire uh, early church history, the first couple of centuries, doesn't record not even one disciple, not just the twelve, but even other people that followed Jesus. There is not recorded in history not even one person that is there on the third day going, he's about to rise from the dead. Or who meets Jesus after he rises from the dead and says, I knew it, I knew he was going to rise from the dead. Not one person says that. Even though, amazingly, we've seen it before, that Jesus explicitly told them that he would rise on the third day. The women, on the Sabbath morning, they come to anoint his body, not to see that whether he's risen from the dead or not. The disciples are up in the room kind of having this pity party because they're so broken. And even when Jesus appears in front of them, they don't think it's real. They were not looking for the resurrection. It was nowhere in their minds in the days after Jesus' death. And to add to all that, there was no worldview even at the time to really conceive of it. Um, yet, so despite no one being recorded as looking for the resurrection, isn't it odd that it then becomes the foundational truth claim of the whole entire faith system? How is that? Another one is that it's just, it's, it was only ever intended to be a symbol uh, or a legend to help Jesus' memory or His Spirit uh, live on in the hearts of His followers. But here's a problem with that. Jesus, I, I think I've said this before, we've seen this, or I've suggested this um, this semester. Jesus was not the first person to claim or for other people to claim to be the Messiah. There are actually people before Him and some who even came after Him to, to claim to be the Messiah, that they were going to lead this revolt of the Jews against the Roman Empire. But there is only one person who claimed to be the Messiah or who others claimed to be the Messiah whose movement continued after their death. And there's only one person that claimed to be the Messiah who, whose followers claimed He was the Messiah who also claimed that He died and rose from the dead. And that would be Jesus and His followers. So the idea that maybe they only intended for it to be symbol and legend, it doesn't, 
it doesn't hold water. Because as we see, the details that Luke gives us here, he's in the middle. I just, I want, you want to be there or you want like a movie to make this. You just met Jesus appears to his disciples for the first time. And they're like, they're freaked out. And he's like, y'all got anything to eat? I'm hungry. I'm hungry. Can I eat for a minute? Um, I sympathize with that. Um, fourth one. The fourth one is that the whole thing was a fraud from the beginning. That the disciples dejected that this guy that they thought was going to redeem them, he's killed. And not only is he killed, he's killed in a very shameful and embarrassing manner. And so they just make something up to cover for it. But here's the problem with that. If it's a fraud from the beginning, the disciples then, you then make the disciples to be the most brilliant scam artist in the history of the entire world. Because they came up with a scam that became the most forceful religion in history over the last 2,000 years. A religion that knows no borders physically, culturally, ethnically, right? These Galilean rednecks whose leader was shamefully put to death. You're going to tell me that they came up. They had the genius to come up with the greatest scam of all history. Again, and then again, you think more about the disciples. You read, if that was the case, you read, if they were going to make up a fraud of that, why would they include Jesus calling them out all the time in the Gospels? These, are, these guys were not spiritual juggernauts. They were spiritual dunderheads most of the time. Um, is dunderhead a thing? I don't know. Um, it came to my mind. Um, they didn't have the spiritual acumen to tie their own shoes Spiritually, I mean, figuratively speaking. Um, and Jesus is calling, constantly calling them out for lack of faith. And here's another brilliant point. Who is the entire testimony of the empty tomb laid upon? Who receives the burden of that? Women. These scam artists come up with the greatest scam of all time, and they rest it all on the testimony of women. That's fascinating because a woman's testimony was not even admissible in court in these days. So you're going to tell me a bunch of guys, they want to cover their tracks, they want to come up with a scam, and they're going to say, no, the women said the tomb was empty. Again, once again, why would you put women as your first eyewitnesses unless they were? And then you've got to love how Luke includes that. Uh, that detail that even when the women come back to the disciples to tell them they thought they were telling an idle tale right so here's the question how could these men if it's a fraud pull something like this off how did they become the founders of the greatest religious movement in history one that to this day knows no borders right um one that ended up toppling one of the greatest empires the world has ever seen in just under, two, under 300 years. How could these men, so cowardly and weak at the climax of the story, go on to be the giants of history that they were, living lives of sacrificial service and even giving their lives to this lie, if it were a lie? How could anyone come to the conclusion that these sad, weak, spineless men had the acumen to come? Come up with a story like that. Unless they saw Jesus risen from the dead. Unless they had seen him. 
And that is what Christianity, that is what the Bible claims. And so, if you are what the Bible calls a Christian, you also stake it all on the historicity of the resurrection. And there's no way around it. There's no explaining it away. The claim of Christianity of the Bible is that Jesus rose from the dead, that He is not dead, He is alive. And if it did not literally happen, then All of this is utterly and completely pointless. All of it. Why it's true. It doesn't just have to make automatic sense. That's not what I'm suggesting. It didn't make automatic sense even when Jesus showed up in the room with the disciples, right? But the evidence stacks up and it definitely stacks up better than the alternatives. And so if you're going to deny it, you actually have a burden on yourself also. To explain the birth of the church and Christianity as a religion. And how it spreads so quickly. Why it's true. This is what I want to close with though. Why we need it to be true. Why we need it to be true. Because it's one thing to say, okay, I'll grant you, he rose from the dead. So what? So what? Three things. The first one, and these kind of come to us here. In Luke 24. The first one is this that we see so evidently here. Is that it heals our broken hearts. It heals our broken hearts. All three of the scenes that we read there in Luke 24 have this in common. Sorrow, confusion, and doubt. Their world had fallen apart. They had given up everything to follow Jesus. And to them in this moment, their world has fallen apart. All their greatest hopes have been dashed. The women go to the tomb and they don't know what to do with the angel. The two on the road and the disciples don't even know what to do when Jesus is in their presence. All of Jesus' followers' hearts were broken. And what the resurrection does is it heals our broken hearts. Three different scenes here in Luke 24. Three different scenes of people dealing with their sorrow, dealing with their confusion, dealing with their utter bewilderment. And what does Jesus offer to all of them? This is what's fascinating. God's Word. That's what He offers all of them. Look at verse 6. The angel says, Remember how He told you. Verse 8. And then they remembered His words. Verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then in verse 32, when he's gone, he says, did, did, they say to themselves, did not our hearts burn? Not when we saw his face. Did not our hearts burn within us while he opened to us the scriptures? And then verses 44 through 46, as he's in that room with the disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The resurrection heals our broken hearts, but the most profound part of it is, is how does Jesus heal our broken hearts? Not by saying, hey, I'll show myself to you. No. My Father has said, it is written, remember my words. And this is it. If it's true, if the resurrection is true, if God's words are true, if Jesus' words are true, it changes everything. 
And you'll actually find at the root of most objections to something like the resurrection of Jesus. The problem with the resurrection of Jesus with a lot of people, whether they're willing to admit it or not, is what Tim Keller says. Is that if he rose from the dead, then you have to accept everything that he said. And if he didn't, why would you worry about anything that he says? If he rose from the dead, you have to accept everything that he said. It heals our broken hearts. The second thing it does is it heals our broken selves. Did you find this interesting in verse 12? One, the women are kind of trying to process what the angels, what the angels are telling them. Then they go to the apostles and the apostles don't really believe them. But we read there in verse 12, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb. It's actually Luke's gospel, Luke 22, verse 61, that Luke tells us that the third time that Peter denies Jesus, that Jesus actually catches his eye. And Peter runs out and weeps bitterly over the fact that he's betrayed Jesus just as Jesus had foretold. So think about that for a second. Why did Peter run to the tomb? He wasn't looking for the resurrection. He didn't say, see, I told y'all he was going to rise again. Why did he run to the tomb? I would suggest to you this. Because the moment he hears the news of it, he realizes he needs it to be true. He doesn't know what to think about it, but he needed it to be true. Peter needed to know that for eternity, he would not be marked a denier, a betrayer, a coward. Peter needed to know that his fate was not sealed in a moment of cowardice. Peter needed to know that he was not now, because of his own actions, utterly hopeless. Peter needed the resurrection to be true. The fact of the matter is, is that we all need the resurrection to be true because the fact of the matter is that all of us, all of us are trying to atone for something. All of us have that something that we do not want to believe that that's it. That that will be the only thing. And so we're all doing something to deal with it. Maybe it's guilt. Maybe it's shame. Maybe it's emptiness. That nothing seems to fill you. Maybe it's something you've done. Maybe it's something that you can't get off your mind because you haven't done it. And you don't know how you will. Maybe it's something you desperately want to be. But that you know you don't come anywhere close to it. Maybe it's the pressure that all these people expect you to be something that you're not. And you're so tired of putting up the charade. Maybe it's just the exhaustion of being involved in each and every single thing that you're asked to be involved in because you think, if I don't do it, then my resume is nothing. And you're tired of the ladder to nowhere. The fact of the matter is is that all of us are trying to atone for something. It's in the way that you date. It's in the way that you bounce from person to person because you just are hoping upon hope that maybe this person will finally love me for who I am will finally give me the affirmation that I am so hungry for. It's in the way that you pour yourself into your schoolwork, right? That you will forsake anything for a good grade. It's in the way that you surround yourself with people that you don't even like, and you're not even sure why you're hanging out with them. Why are you? It's a good question. 
It's in the way that you seclude yourself and you will not let anyone in. That there's things about you that not one, you, however long you've been on campus, there's not one of your friends that knows things that people probably should know about you. Because you won't let people in. It's in the way that the real you apparently only comes out on Thursday or Friday night. It's not the real you, by the way. All of it. We're using all those things as a means of atonement. And we're using it as a means of atonement for falling short. Because we all live with this needling sense that we are falling short of something. And we don't even know what it is. But here it is. The resurrection heals our broken selves because the empty tomb, get this, is God's sign forever. That Jesus' payment on our behalf is acceptable in his sight. Keller puts it like this, that the resurrection is God's way of stamping paid in full on all of history for his people. Peter didn't quite understand what was going on, but Peter did understand he needed it to be true. We need it to be true as well. The final thing is this. It heals our broken broken hearts. It heals our broken selves. It heals our broken world. Man, you don't have to turn on Twitter or the news for more than 10 seconds to at least want this to be true, right? Right? If it happened, what it tells us is it means that there's an infinite hope. And there's actually reason, there actually is good reason to pour ourselves out for the needs of the world. Not just to build ourselves up. Because if you believe that all this is true, what it will actually begin to do is it will completely transform the way that you view the world. It will completely transform how you view relationships. It will completely transform how you view people. Because when you see this for what it is, you believe with assurance that when the kingdom of God comes, it brings just what Jesus says at first to the disciples in verse 36, peace, shalom. That when the kingdom of God bursts into this world, into the here and now, that it really does bring shalom, that it really does promise shalom. It's not just some pie in the sky thing that we hope that we get to one day. But it's actually a complete healing of all the relationships of creation that have been broken. Our relationship to God. Our relationship to each other. Our relationship to our world, to creation. Our relationship to our own selves. Jesus' death and resurrection are not your ticket to heaven. That's not what it is. That was not what it was intended for. Shane Wheeler asked the question. He wrote a book called The Briar Patch Gospel. And he asked this question. I think it's an interesting one. Why even raise Jesus from the dead? Why not just kind of all of a sudden like light just burst out everywhere and God say, ta-da, I did it. And raise Jesus up into heaven and be like, all right, you guys that killed him, y'all are done. You guys that kind of followed him, we'll figure something out for you. Let's go. Why not? Why is it not over then? And this is what Wheeler says. That for 2,000 years... The visitation of the resurrected Jesus signals us to the fact that a new reality has been unleashed in the world. That the presence of Jesus are here and now. 
And we actually see that right at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21. Because the end of all history, according to what John sees in Revelation, is not that all of a sudden all the good people get ushered up into heaven. That's not what John sees. John actually sees at the end of all things, heaven itself comes down to this world. And the king that sits on the throne of that city says, Behold, I am making all things new. This biblical view of things, it's not one of consolation. It's not one of resolution or resolve or reformation even. No. The biblical view of things, of this world, of all of us, is resurrection. All of it. And what the empty tomb shows us and tells us and gives us hope for is that it's true and that it's coming. I can't help, even though it may be like really overused, I can't help but go to The Return of the King, the last book in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Spoiler alert's coming. This is like so 10 years ago, so your fault. Um, but Sam Gamgee, Samwise Gamgee, right, wakes up in Rivendell having... Uh, persevered to the end with his best friend Frodo, and they've thrown the ring into Mount Doom. They thought they were going to die, and they may not have even realized they were rescued. And Samwise Gamgee wakes up, and he wakes up to see, at the end of his bed, Gandalf. Gandalf, who he hasn't seen until Gandalf, Gandalf, he thought, had plunged to his death, saving all of them. And this is what Sam Gamgee says as he wakes Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then again I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? Christianity's answer to that question is a resounding yes. But it's not a pipe dream. It's not something that it tells us to just cross your fingers and hope we get there one day. Just hope that we're progressive enough and get the things right enough that we get there wonder. No. God's answer comes by way of an empty tomb that, yes, everything sad is going to come untrue. And it starts with an empty tomb. It starts with a risen Jesus. It starts with a living Savior who sits at the right hand of His Father, interceding for His brothers and His sister. He is be- sisters. He has become their forerunner on their behalf. Christianity's answer, the Bible's answer, the Gospel's answer is that the curse has been broken and death itself has been defeated. We need this to be true. We need to be able to sing with full assurance this Christmas season that He comes to make His blessings flow. Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Now, I don't know how far that is for you. There's a sense in which I'll never know. But what if it was true? That is... As for Luke, for me, for all of us, an invitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need life. And life is what you've given given us. And you've given given it to us in your Son. 
And you've put your spirit in our hearts. That you who said, let light shine out of darkness, you have now shown in our hearts in the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, we need this to be true. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.